Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, I want to start by saying whoever left uh, the air conditioner running outside, uh, you're not in trouble, but I would love for you to turn it off. We don't have this kind of money to just be running it out there and make it all cold at this time of year. It's supposed to be getting warmer, right? Uh, I don't know if you like cold weather. Some people here are like rejoicing because they're like, this is my weather, right? And I'm like, no, we live in Texas. This is supposed to be hot and sunny, right? Anyways, I, I just woke up today thinking, man, I'm glad I'm going to get to be in church today. I don't have to be out there in that mess because it wasn't bright and sunny this morning. It was cold and windy, but in here, uh, it's been warm. It's been bright uh, as everybody has come to worship, as they have lifted their voices in song and in praise. It has been a wonderful place to be this morning. And I'm honored to be here with you uh, here at 930 uh, to share a message with you from Scripture. Uh, if we haven't met before, my name is Johnny. I serve as one of your pastors here at First Methodist Mansfield. And I want to invite you, if you have a Bible with you, to turn in that to Luke chapter 15. If you didn't bring one with you, we have some in the back of the pews in front of you. They're blue. If you're using that blue Bible, you can find Luke 15 on page 1625. Last week, we began a brand new series called Seeds of a Better Life. Because at the heart of this series, we started this series because we knew everybody, including ourselves, everybody, everybody seeks the better life. Everybody desires that. There's something within us that stirs, that longs for something more. Something more. And that's, and that's not bad. That's actually good. There's something in there that, that longs for something deeper and, and fuller. We want better. But we, we face a challenge. We face a challenge in our lives because we often have trouble defining what better actually means. And what better is. And we have tons of voices and messages all around us, surround us, that, that try to define that for us. And it becomes hard to decipher what actually is better. How do I actually satisfy that thing that's in me? Day in and day out, we're surrounded with messages promising us the better life. By, and those messages use words like cheaper and faster, immediate, younger, no long-term contracts, right? Cancel any time. And while I would love to get everything in my life cheaper and faster with unlimited options, I would love to not sign cell phone contracts ever again or cable contracts. I would love to not do those. I do know that the whole of my life is not made more significant with words like that. Because I don't want a cheaper life. I don't want a faster life. What I want is a full life. A deeper life, a better life that is grounded in something, rooted in something significant. We read Psalm 1 last week that described two ways of living. One was empty and, and dry and malnourished and uh, was blown around by the wind. And the other described a person who is living what we are describing as the better life. They describe that person uh, as a tree that is planted by a stream of water. It's fruitful and it's flourishing because it's rooted by the source of life. And for us, that's God. It's a life that is directed toward God. Psalm 1 tells us that the better life is a planted life. 
It is one that is intentional and faithful. It sinks its roots deep down into the soil. It's not immediate or quick. It is not cheap. And it's not always easy. But it is the better life. It's the one that plants good seeds and fertile soil and nurtures them. And over the course of time, they begin to grow and mature and be fruitful. And starting today, what we want to do is look uh, at three very specific seeds that we plant in three very specific, highly influential places in our life. Uh, And we're going to do one of those this week, one next week, and one on, so on, and so on. These three areas are what we believe, what we practice, and who we share life with. The three most influential areas in our life. These are the three areas that we're going to look to plant some seeds. Uh, And this week we're going to focus specifically on what we believe. And the seed that we're going to focus on is what we believe about God. Now, beliefs are the stories that we have, that we hold on to, that govern our life's story. Right? They're the things that we know. They're the things that we live by. These stories are how we determine, or that these stories that we hold on to determine how we live, the things that we're going to do. And at the very core of all of that, the center of all of that is what we believe about God, because what we believe about God influences all of those things. A.W. Tozer, the great American pastor and, and devotional writer, said this, what comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The most important thing, because what we believe about God defines the type of relationship that we'll have with God. And the type of relationship that we have with God will either nurture our spiritual growth, that better that scripture talks about, that we hope for, that we long for, and that God desires for us, or it will hinder it. What we think about God influences how we uh, relate to God. And the way we relate with God will either help or hinder. It's either going to nurture that growth or it won't. So naturally, when we examine what it uh, is to have the better life, to obtain the better life, right, to seek the better life, it seems natural to start with examining what we believe about God. So if you were to close your eyes right now, you can definitely do it if you trust those sitting around you. You can. Uh, If you were to close your eyes and I were to say, picture God, what picture comes to mind? Like, how do you see God when you think about God? You know, the way you see God, uh, whether it is in a, a person like humanoid type form or maybe it's a cloud, I don't know. However you see God, and especially the way you picture God, if if you see God as a human form, uh, God's facial expressions, things like that, tells us a lot about what we believe about God and how God operates. What do we picture? What do we think about when we think about God? This is the focus of James Bryan Smith's book, a fantastic book called The Good and Beautiful God. I know many of you have read it. Many of you remember him when he came a few years back. He did a conference, shared some wonderful wisdom and insights, some teaching uh, with us. Uh, If you haven't read the book, I want you to do it. I highly recommend it. Pastor David highly recommends it. He recommended it to me several years back. I've read it so many times. Wonderful book. This This is the question he's interested in. What do we believe about God and how that shapes how we live how we relate to God and how we relate to God's world. 
In that book, he writes this, to know the God of Jesus is to know the truth about who God really is. To know the God of Jesus is to know the truth about who God really is. Something we talked about when we did our Bible series at the beginning of the year is that we see God through Jesus. What James Brian Smith is hoping to remind us of as Christians is that we believe that Jesus is the clearest picture of God that we have. Jesus' heart, his character are for us the full embodiment of God. It's evident when we read scriptures, we see Jesus there in the way that he lived and loved God and others. And the way he talked about God with others. Because sometimes the way he lived, God's heart and character confused some people. So he often told them stories. So when we want to answer the question, what's God like? We look at Jesus. And as we do, we ask ourselves, is, is my understanding of, of who God is consistent with Jesus' understanding of who God is? This is, this is basic to our faith. We see Jesus and we see God. So I want to turn to Luke chapter 15 here. This is, this is one of those moments where Jesus' life, the way he lived, the type of people he healed, the way he healed and, and welcomed people in, the people he ate dinner with, started to confuse people because they thought, well, if he's supposed to be a man of God, right? Some are calling him the son of God. If he's supposed to be this person, like, why is he with those people? Right? It was confusing for them. They were troubled because they couldn't reconcile the picture and the, and the way they knew God with the way Jesus was portraying God. And Luke 15 is one of those points. It happens a lot in the Gospels, but it's one of those points where those two ideas collide and Jesus confronts it. He hears the confusion of people as they mutter about behind his back. And then he proceeds to tell them a few stories because obviously his actions aren't clearing him up. So let me tell a few stories to try to make it clear for you. In, in Luke 15, he begins with two stories, the story of the lost sheep and the lost coin. And then he ends with probably the most known, most beloved story that we have in scripture, uh, the parable of the lost son. You might've heard it called uh, the prodigal son. So here, chapter one, Luke 15, we read, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner 
who repents. Rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. I love these stories. I've often heard Luke 15 referred to as the gospel within the gospel, right? Because it's just so much good news right there. If somebody wonders what God is like and what this Jesus person is all about, I mean, a safe bet is to send them right to Luke 15. Before you know anything else, know this. This is great. This is a story that Jesus tells that I think cuts at the heart of who we are as people of faith. I've loved them. They're some of my favorite portions of scripture. But I want to, if I'm honest, if I'm totally honest with you, I would also have to say that while I have loved these scriptures and I have impressed them upon my heart, I, I can't, I have to say that I've wrestled with them too. I can't say that I've fully understood them. I feel like I've, I've missed something over the years as I've read them and I've heard them read to me. Something just, just beyond my grasp. Because according to Jesus here, these stories are about heaven's rejoicing over one repentant sinner. But I've never really understood how. It's always bugged me. It, it, almost like the story didn't quite line up with what I, what I interpreted Jesus to mean here. Because the lost sheep doesn't repent. The shepherd doesn't go out there and the sheep's like, oh, sorry, I thought we were going this way. Oh, well, thanks for your apology, sheep. Now you can come back, right? The coin definitely doesn't repent. Doesn't roll itself back up onto the counter and drop itself back in the purse. The person who finds it didn't look in there and go, oh, I miscounted. It was there the whole time. I've never really understood how this is about, these stories are about repentance. Repentance is definitely good and it has been an important part of my life and these stories have definitely expressed that to me. But I feel like I've just, there's something else there that I've been missing. Because none of these characters, the sheep or the coin, get themselves found. They're just found. Let's keep reading. Verse 11. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so he divided his property between them. But not long after that, the son got together all he had and set off for a distant country. And there he squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven. And against you. But I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so he got up and went to his father. But, don't miss this part. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. 
while he was still a long way off, the father ran to him. When Jesus says that these stories are about heaven's rejoicing over one repentant sinner, I feel like I've read this placing my own emphasis on Jesus' words. I don't know if they would have sounded different if Jesus had spoken them audibly to me. But as I read them, I've always placed the bulk of the emphasis of these stories on the end of the sentence. Repentant sinners. Which is a big deal. But I wonder if there might be something bigger here. Something that comes before that. That leads to repentance. Because as far as I can tell, sheep had nothing to do with coming back to the flock, being restored. Coin had nothing to do with getting found. Even the lost son. The story makes a point to say that he was still a long way off. When his father ran to him and embraced him and welcomed him home. The son wasn't even returning home. He was returning to a potential job, ready to beg a potential employer for a place to get a meal and a place to sleep. The father would have none of that. Yes, they were all lost, but they were all simply found not because of anything that they did, but because of what God did. When Jesus is telling this story, we hear about repentance and we hear about uh, being lost and being found again. And we wonder, why is Jesus telling this story like this? We're privy to all the controversy that Jesus has stirred up here. We're privy to why Jesus is compelled to talk about lost sons and, and, and lost sheep, lost coins. There were some Pharisees around him who began muttering and grumbling when they saw how Jesus so freely and openly welcomed these sinners to him. And that he dined with them and he hung out with them. They, they were scandalized by this. How could he do such a thing? You see, in just the previous chapter there, in chapter 14, Jesus was having dinner with all the Pharisees. And they were having discussions there. And as, as he leaves, he comes out and, and, and he tells stories about the kingdom. He tells stories about what it means to be a disciple and, and how costly that is and how hard it is. And this was drawing people in. They had never heard people, somebody teach like this before. All sorts of people. And, and it says there that tax collectors and sinners, this is just kind of the general term that they use for people that were not religious people, that are coming in. And hearing Jesus talk about this. And then the very religious people, the teachers of the law and, and, and the Pharisees see this and they go, like, how is this possible? You see, these Pharisees were good God-fearing folks. Devoted people of faith, right? They don't just talk about their faith. They actually live it. They are committed to it. They have God's law. They give it its full respect and trust and obedience. It guides their life and, and, and they do it willingly. Because they know that's what God wants. This is what God wants for everybody to live this righteous life, this upstanding life. 
And so what they hope to do is that as committed as they are to their life, is that they can just follow it as, as, as committedly as, and faithfully as possible, that they will set an example for everybody else, all these other sinners, right? They will set an example for them, for what it means to live the godly life, for what it means to approach the presence of God and not be separated from God. We will set the example. And when they're ready to come to us and they're ready to start doing things like we do them, then they will be welcomed in. But how can Jesus just so freely welcome them in? They haven't signed a commitment card. They haven't checked off any of the boxes. They haven't done anything yet except for just be here. How could he so free? They're sinners. They haven't lived up to the standard that we've all lived up to that's been set for us, that we work so hard to keep. How can he make it so easy? Is Jesus uninterested in godly living? Is Jesus uninterested in repentance and asking for forgiveness and confession? Is Jesus uninterested in the righteous? He just told us that the shepherd left the 99 out there in the open field. We know that Jesus is very interested in repentance. Very interested in confession. Very interested in following God's commands and God's will. He talks about it all the time. What Jesus is interested in, interested in confronting here is something different though. It's the way the Pharisees see and understand God and what it means to be in God's presence. You see, what he is hearing and what he understands as the dominant narrative about God in the world is that they believe God's love is somehow conditional. That we think of God's love in terms of earning and deserving. That God can somehow only love us when we're good, when we're following all or most of the rules. This to Jesus is a distorted view of God, a performance-based view of God. It's the dominant narrative for the Pharisees here that are muttering about who deserves to be in Jesus' presence and hear teachings from the word of God. And in many ways, I feel like it's still very dominant today. Like this narrative has not gone away. It, it crops up in my life every now and again. As I sit down to pray and read scripture, I do so as a longing to be near God and to know God. But sometimes there's this little voice, this fear in me that I might not be praying long enough or reading enough or doing it as consistently as I should and that God is growing disappointed that if I forget a few days in a row or one day I'm just so exhausted that my spiritual practice is going to be sleeping in, that that somehow upsets God and I am now out of God's favor. God's angry, rolling his eyes. It makes sense though that I might think this and that if any of you do, if it ever pops up in your mind that you might not be living up to God's standards and how could God love somebody like me? It makes sense though because this is the world we live in. It's how the world works, right? We've known at a very young age that the world we live in is based on performance. We've been taught that since very young, right? Like at school, how do you get good grades? How do you stay out of detention? Some of you didn't. You're good. 
at work? How do you get paid and promotions? It's performance-based. Even in our families, in our relationships, in our homes, we are acutely aware that acceptance, our acceptance, hinges on our behavior, good behavior. And because this is so much of the part of the, uh, of the way we see the world and experience the world, it would, it's only natural that that begins to bleed into the way that we see God. There's a little bit of that residue on our faith in God. We project that onto God. This was the dominant narrative that Jesus overheard in the muttering of the Pharisees. And this is the one that he sought with his entire life to confront and to change, to show people a different picture of God with the way that Jesus lived and died and rose again for all the people, everyone, including for those that he prayed on that cross, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. They have no clue how wrong they are now, but God forgive them, love them. So here's that something bigger that I mentioned a little earlier. When Jesus says that these stories are about heaven's rejoicing over one repentant sinner, I've always focused myself, emphasized the back half of that. I don't know who told me to do that. That's just what I've done. That's how I've read these stories. I've always placed it on the end of the sentence, but maybe the emphasis was meant to be a little bit earlier. Not on the repentance, but on the rejoicing. This seems like the perfect contrast, the perfect counter-narrative to pharisaical muttering. It's heavenly rejoicing. Rejoicing. When Jesus recognizes and hears this way of thinking about God, he tells these three, three stories, not just about lost sheep, not just about lost coins or lost sons, not just about repentant sinners, but about good shepherds, persistent housewives, and about infinitely and impossibly loving fathers and how they rejoice over finding what is so precious to them. That was once lost. The son said to him, verse 21, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But it's as if the father wasn't even listening. Because instead he is already on his cell phone calling the caterer and the band to come over because it's time to feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. He didn't say, for the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and finally came crawling back home, groveling, said he was sorry and I told him that this is the deal. You're gonna pay back every penny and this is how you're gonna do it. And he agreed to it and now I'm gonna let him back in the house. No, for the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now is found. So what comes to your mind when you think about God? Maybe a better question to ask is what do you think comes to God's mind when he thinks about you? Because according to Jesus, God thinks you're precious. 
You're invaluable. You know, you've ever had something precious, something you considered precious to you? You did so not because of what that thing has done for you. you. You call it precious and you treasure it and you hold on to it because of what it means to you. It hasn't done anything for you. It hasn't even really deserved that title, but you call it that. Because you have said that this means something to me and that's how God thinks of you. Man, how how might our lives be transformed if, if we planted that seed in our life, right? If this is what we believed about God, that God looks upon us and rejoices in us because he finds us precious. Would you mind, let's, let's say that together. Let's, let's affirm, let's plant that seed together in our hearts. God rejoices in me because I am precious to God. That's the truth, and it's so hard to believe sometimes, but you are. This is the story that Jesus tells, that you are so precious to God, that God, the good shepherd, is willing to chase after you all over the countryside, facing all sorts of dangers when you have wandered off, to bring you back safely into the flock and into his presence. God thinks you're so precious that the persistent housekeeper will dig into couch cushions and crawl all over the floor, sweeping every inch of the house until she finds you again. Until you're back in her presence. You're so precious that God, the loving Father, will tirelessly scan the horizon while standing on the porch day after day until he catches just a glimpse of you on the horizon as the day dies. And then he will run to you, abandoning all dignity, all decorum, sandals flying off as dust is being kicked up down the driveway, run to you and embrace you, call you child and say, I love you, welcome home. This is the power and the mystery of grace and this is the core of our faith and of who God is. And so as we seek the, the fullness of the picture of God, as we seek God and God's holiness, we want our lives to be transformed and sanctified and shaped to look more like Jesus. When we find ourselves in places distant from God and we think, I, I don't know if God could love a person like me. I don't know if I can be forgiven. I don't know if I can be loved like so-and-so is loved who reads their Bible every day and has done everything right and never done anything wrong. The power and the mystery of grace says God loves you first. God's grace is bigger and better and cannot be achieved by anything that you would ever try to do. No matter how hard you try, no matter how much of the Bible you read each and every day, you can't earn it. God gives it. And no matter how hard you try, you can't run far enough away from it. That is grace. And when that's the God that we know, the God that Jesus talks about here, we find ourselves more confident, more confident in coming into God's presence as repentant sinners. Thanks be to God. Let's pray.
God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for loving us in spite of ourselves. Thank you for calling us precious, God. Thank you for seeing us as your children, God. We pray that we are able to receive your grace that you give so freely, God, as a gift. Not as something earned or deserved. That we receive it, God, because you give it. And that as we receive it, God, we see our lives transformed. And that we might also share that grace as freely as you have shared it with us with the world. So that it too may be transformed. It's in your name we pray. Amen.